Yeah, I felt a little bit of resistance about this message today. Um, when I started to um, prepare it, um, my laptop kept going off and um, I was typing the importance of worshipping God. And um, I did it a couple of times and then my laptop died and went to laptop heaven. Um, and so I've got handwritten notes. Um, I haven't opened any emails all week. It all feels a little bit blind from where I'm stood right now. Um, and then added to that, as I say, this morning very early, how I'd been taken to A&E. So I felt a little bit of resistance. So I am going to do my absolute best to deliver with the best clarity I can the importance of worshipping our God. Um, I'm going to start with a definition. I looked at the definition of worship. It said to adore, to idolise, to hold in esteem, to deem as worthy, show reverence to, pay homage to. I then looked in some theology books and it said the true definition of biblical worship is both an attitude and a belief and an act. So I'm going to hang this under five headings. Reverence, diligence, arrogance, deliverance, and ignorance. So reverence, first heading. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 35, we have the only sentence in the Old Testament where all three Hebrew words for worship are condensed into one sentence. And I'll read it to you. It says, when the Lord makes a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. And the three words for worship, the first one is revere, reverence. In that text it says worship. And the reality is that we assume and associate worship with, 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 with singing. And quite often we'll have, a, 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 we'll have prayer and then we'll go, and now we're going into a time of worship. But worship is so much more than just praising and exalting. The second word for worship is submit. It said there, do not bow down to any other God. When we bow our head in prayer, we're being submissive. We show it's a form of worship. It's no coincidence in the book of Daniel when the king ordered that every time his band played that everybody should bow down to the gold statue. When they refused, when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down, they recognised the significance of dropping their head. It's a form of worship. Third form of worship is to serve. So me stood here preaching this is a form of worship. The people who met you on the door as you walked in, they were worshipping. When you go and have a coffee afterwards in the back room, those people are worshipping. So, uh, worship is reverence, but it's so, so much more. So, so much more. I've got a painting um, on our landing at home, and it's a painting, it's a Rembrandt painting, um, of his son, Tobias, and his son died when he was 21, so this, he's about 18 in this painting. 
Um, it's not the original. If it was the original, I'd be in Barbados living on my own island. But, but it's, 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 about, it's about a good four feet tall. It's a life-size painting. And in the era that it was painted, I, I love that era because I think that they painted to like photographic standards. Like you looked at them and when I look into Tobias's eyes, it's as if he's looking back at me. It could be the person themselves. And you know, we've got other paintings from the 70s, from the 90s, a bit abstract. And if I'm really honest, they could have been painted by a monkey. But this <laughs> painting, you know when something is excellent. You could imagine touching his skin, like it is that good. And my question is, what do we do when we're shown something beautiful or excellent? We automatically praise it. But there has to be something that is supremely valuable and is worthy of utmost praise. Now for us, for Christians, that being is God. It's the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, that's the question. How do we know that we have got it right? What we give praise to, what we worship, how do we know as Christians that we've got it right? How do we know that Muhammad in 700 AD when he wrote the Quran didn't get it right. How do we know the Buddhists didn't get it right? How do we know the Hindus or whoever didn't get it right? So that brings me on to the second heading, diligence. What we worship, have we got it right? Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I am one of the ways. There's not a lot of space in that, in that sentence for tolerance of other faiths in this getting to the Father through them. So if we're diligent, and if we think about it, how do we know that this is right? The Bible, it's a collection of 66 books. More if you read the Apocrypha. It was written by over 40 authors in numerous countries, in numerous languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, over thousands of years. And then all of these writings were all collated together and stapled rather neatly into what we call the Bible. So you've got all these people over all these thousands of years, in all these languages, in all these different countries, writing and prophesying and hinting at one person, the Messiah, the Son of God, who would come to earth to save us. So I've picked out some of the obvious ones. I'm really sorry, they are the obvious ones, but we keep it easy. So, the virgin birth predicted by Isaiah chapter 7. We read about it, Matthew chapter 1. The fact that our Lord would be born in Bethlehem, prophesied by Micah 5. We read of being born in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. 
the fact that he, with Joseph and Mary, would have to fly to Egypt was prophesied by Hosea in chapter 11, 1. We read of that very thing happening in Matthew chapter 2, as Herod announced that all the young born men, all the young boy and boys under two had to be killed. The fact that he would minister or work in Galilee, prophesied by Isaiah. We read it in many places, one of which Matthew chapter 4, where he ministered. The fact he'd be able to heal the sick. Again, Isaiah 61. We read of him healing the sick in John chapter 5. The fact he'd be betrayed by a close friend. We read in Psalm 41, that psalm written by David. We read of Judas betraying him in John chapter 13. The fact that he'd teach us using parables. Again, we read in the psalm, Psalm 78, prophesied by Asaph. We read of one of his parables in Matthew chapter 13. The fact he'd be rejected by the Jews, Isaiah 53. And that's quite a big one, because that's like prophesying who the King of England's going to be and saying the English will hate him. But we read about it in John chapter 1, how he's rejected by the Jews. The fact his garments would be shared and divided up by lots. We read in Psalm 22. In Matthew 27, we read of the Roman soldiers dividing his clothing up between lots. The fact he'd be offered vinegar as he thirsted. Psalm 69. We read of that happening when he hung on the cross in Matthew 27. The fact his body would be pierced without his bones being broken. Prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 12. And we read of the soldiers piercing his side to confirm that the blood and water would come out separated and that he was dead. We read that in John chapter 19. The fact he'd end up being buried in somebody else's tomb, a rich man's tomb, we read of in Isaiah 53. We read in Matthew 27 how Joseph of Arimathea felt so sorry that he donated his tomb when he was a rich man. The fact that he would rise again on the third day prophesied by Hosea, chapter 6. We read of that in the Gospels, one of which is Luke 24. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, don't think it was an empty promise. I think he genuinely knew what he was on about. And it wasn't just an earthly life he was promising us this relationship with, it was an eternal life. And it's almost as if the Trinity had this conversation in heaven. And they said, well, we've sent them the priests and they still haven't got it. We've sent them the prophets and they still haven't got it. One of us is just going to have to go down there and face to face tell them. And then just to show that we do know what we're on about, we'll come back to life. You could almost imagine that conversation. But diligence, Jesus, who we worship, who we offer praise to, did we get it right? Yes, I believe we do get it right. But that then brings me on to heading number three, arrogance. Bit of a prickly heading, this one. In all of scripture, God desires us to worship him. And if you're anything like me, 
I ask thousands of questions all the time, and I know I get on people's nerves, and that's just how God created me. I I like to discern, I like to weigh up, I like to measure, I like to make informed choices. In Exodus chapter nine, when God's talking to Moses, he says, go to the Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go so that they may worship me. He didn't say, let my people go, because you know what, slavery, I don't think I quite approve of that. He didn't say, let my people go, because you know what, now they're having to make bricks without straw, and that must be really hard. He didn't say, let my people go, because you know what, they're doing 20-hour days in 30-degree heat. He said, let my people go, so that they can worship me. And like... There's a hint of arrogance about that. And so I dug, feet, dug deeper. God desires glorification. God desires the valuing of himself. And it's almost as if he could be concerned for his own fame. Is that a bit egotistical? Is it like, has he, has he got to be bigged up all the time? Because the reality is, if it was a human being, we'd naturally recoil from them. You know, the the big head, the better than everybody else person that you just draw back from a little bit. Um, We've got a saying in the black country, if you've got a black cat, he's got one blacker. You know, that kind of person where like, you know, you've just got to pull away. So how can God ask us to worship him? How can he ask us to worship him? Because if it was a human, we'd naturally draw back, we'd retract. And the reality is this book written by all these people in all these countries, is inspired by God, and it's inspired by God telling us to worship God. You know, we have these little snippets, um, one of which was in the scripture I chose, you know, like little worship advertisements. Oh, and the angels were singing, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. How can God ask us to worship him? Well, here's the answer to the arrogance question. We know that idolatry is a human sin. When we idolise something and we put it in the place of God, we're sinning. The reality is, if God didn't desire us to worship him, it would be idolatry on his behalf. If he failed or refused to value himself preeminently, he'd be implicating himself in the sin of idolatry. If he didn't encourage us to glorify and worship him, it's like he's saying there's something out there more important than me. God desires worship because if he didn't, he would be sinning, and that would undo him as God. So we've looked at reverence, worship, so much more than just praise. We've looked at diligence, have we got it right, what we worship, is it right? We've looked at arrogance, how can God ask us to worship him? And now I'm gonna look at deliverance. This book, this Bible, what's the point of it? 
What is the point of all of this? What is the point of us all walking around on this planet? What is the point of us all living and breathing right now? I'll give it you in one nutshell. One nutshell, I will sum this all up in one nutshell. This is all about a central battle of who or what you're gonna choose to worship. That's it. The reality is, you weren't put on this planet to get the best career you possibly could. You actually weren't put on this planet to see if you could buy the biggest house you could. You weren't put on this planet to gather the most amount of friends that you could. You might say, well, I don't worship those things. And the giveaway is often where you spend your money and your time. We are here with two choices. We can either worship God, the creator, or worship something else that's created. That's it, that's the battle. The the scripture that I chose, chapter four, and also if you read read chapter five, but I thought that would be a bit long-winded for whoever was reading to read it out. It's lovely imagery, it is beautiful. The worshippers there before the throne of God, just exalting him, just, just because they love to and they want to. And that's got a really sharp contrast with chapter 13 of Revelation, where the beast is forcing people to worship. But there's the insight. There's the insight into the book. There's the insight into this cosmic conflict. There's the insight into the choices. It's all about a choice of what or who you're going to worship. That's it. Recognize the weight of that choice. You know, like I said with Daniel, with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, it could have, you could look at that story and go, that's so trivial, just bow down in front of a statue. Wow, I would have just bowed down, that would have been so much easier. But they recognised the weight. They were evidencing their choice. The reality is, it is all about who or what we choose to worship. The enemy often uses three distractions. The first one is God doesn't exist, which if I'm really honest, I think a lot of the West has fallen for right now. The second one is that he, the devil, doesn't exist. And the third one is that they all exist, all faiths, all of them all exist and they all lead to God. And that's quite often what's taught in our secondary school, the the questions that our kids come back with, you know, in contrast to what it says in scripture. And I I feel for these people that follow these faiths and I genuinely love them and I genuinely believe they're misguided. I have sat down with Buddhists and scripture and gone through it with them. I have sat down with Mormons and scripture and gone through it with them. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't turn up at house in twos, they turn up in threes because there's safety in numbers because I get my Bible out and I sit down and I go through scripture with them. I genuinely love them. Genuinely, I love that they are seeking and searching for where to give their worship. I genuinely do love that. But I do believe with my heart that it's Jesus, that Jesus is the way to the Father. So that takes me on to my final heading worship, of worship, and that's ignorance. People that are not Christians often say, well, I don't need to read the Bible, I'm not a Christian. 
And the reality is that in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word. And it's like a catch-22. They say, oh, I don't need to read the Bible because I'm not a Christian. But the reality is they're not a Christian because they haven't read the Bible. You know, I mean, my Bible bag, you know, says life would be so much easier if everybody read the manual. You know, wouldn't it just? The reality is, if they read it and they captured some of its uniqueness, some of its complexity, they captured the focal point, they captured what, where, where it was all pointing to, they'd make a more informed choice about their worship. I went to um, Bournemouth for the um, Whit Week, and um, long story short, the kids had run out of deodorant, so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll walk down the road, there's a, there's a little corner shop, I'll get some deodorant. And I wandered down, and um, it was only five minutes away, and I bumped into this girl, she approached me, she was homeless, um, she was a mess. I said, do you want to sit down and talk somewhere? She said, yeah, so we, we went and found a bench. And we were sat there talking, and she said, I've got nothing. She said, my mum, my well, she got pregnant, she'd, she'd never met a dad. Her mum had been a drug dealer um, and a drug taker, and she'd found her dead. She'd found her overdosed. She'd been put into a care home. She'd spent her youth going through a care home. At the end of that, she'd then been ejected out of the care home. She'd found herself homeless. She had no support network. She, was, she wasn't even existing, if I'm really honest. And, and, and she'd got no hope. She just said, got nothing, got absolutely nothing. What is the point of me being here? She didn't do drugs, she showed me her arms, she wasn't injecting, her teeth were white. She wasn't taking anything, but she was like, what is the point of my life? And I sat her down and I said to her, I, I, talked, through, I talked about the scriptures with her, a car, posh car went past, I think it was a Tesla. I said, you see that, that car, really expensive car? I tell you what, if you found Jesus and he hasn't, you've got more. You know, somebody walked past, really posh clothes. See that woman over there with those Russell and Bromley shoes? Do you know what? If you've got Jesus and she hasn't, you're richer. Like, recognise the perspective of what it is. And I talked to her about Matthew 20 and the parable of the vineyards. And I, and I said, you know, in that parable... The reality is, the, the, the owner goes out and he says, I need help, I need help harvesting the vineyards. 9 a.m., people go in to help. He's still got so much work, he goes back out at lunchtime, he said, anybody else, any more workers? A few more workers turned up. He goes back out at tea time, anybody else help me? And then, at the end of the day, he's handing out the wages. And he hands out the same wages to those that turn up at 9 a.m., those that turn up at lunchtime, those that turn up at tea time. I said, and on the face of it, that could look really unfair if you'd been there since nine. The same as for this girl, on the face of it, that looks really unfair that these people are all doing so much better and you're here with nothing apart from the clothes you're wearing. I said, but the reality is, the message, the motto, if you like, behind that story is, is when you find Jesus, whether you're a primary school, secondary school, 20s, 30s, 40s, or on the last day on your deathbed, the prize is still the same. Jesus still gives the same, still gives his love, still gives eternal life. So, to conclude, we are called to worship our God. 
not to big him up. But it's evidence of our choice. A bit like baptism, it's evidence of our choice. That's where we're placing our vote. The central battle of all of this book, the whole point of it, is it's a choice. We all have a choice to worship God or not. In the beginning, when I talked about the definitions and I said that in the theology books, the, 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 the real definition of worship was it wasn't just an attitude of belief, but it was matched with an action, a form of obedience. And the reality is, if it was just matched, if it was just belief that got salvation, then even the demons would be saved because they believe Jesus is the Son of God. They fell down and shrieked and ran off when they saw him. They know he's the Son of God. Worshipping is an act of obedience. It's showing who we are following. It's showing who we love. It's showing who we're thankful for, thankful to. Um, Just to convince you, as a little end thing, um, I don't know if any of you remember Carry On Films. Um, I love Carry On Films. I know they're so naff, but I really love them. And there was one called um, Carry On At Your Convenience. And there was Sid James, and he was married to Hattie. And I don't know if you remember it, but they had this budgie called Joey. And he had the newspaper, and he would, he, and, and he would read the, um, the horse races. And when he got to the winning horse, the, the, the budgie, Joey, chirped. And Hattie said, oh, she said, you must check, is that the winner? And he, oh, yes, that was the one that won that race. And then, and then they almost test the budgie. And so they go to the next race and they read through it and um, they get to the winning horse and the budgie chirps and they check and it run. And Sid James said, well, that's okay, predicting the races that have won, that's no good. We need a budgie that predicts the races like, for, for next week. So Hattie says, well, try it, try it. So he gets the newspaper and he opens it to the races the following day. And he reads them out and the budgie's stuck there on its perch, really quiet. And he gets to this horse and it chirps and Hattie says, put the money on that one. And it, and it wins. And then it happens again and it wins. And the reality is, Sid James has confidence to put, put his, place his bets and put his money where his mouth is because he has insight as to who's going to win. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, It tells us who's going to win this central battle for worship. We already know who the winner is. So, make your choice wisely. It affects eternity, not just your earthly life. Amen.